Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Elder Snow Goes Rogue. On August 7th, 2019, Elder Stephen Snow, the head of the LDS Church History Department, appeared on the Salt Lake Tribune podcast titled Mormon Land, where he was interviewed by two reporters for the Salt Lake Tribune. Since 2012, Elder Snow has been the church historian. He took over that role from former church historian Elder Marlon Jensen. The reason this episode is titled Elder Snow Goes Rogue is because during the course of this interview, he said a number of things that surprised listeners. He seemed to be more candid than one would normally expect a church historian and general authority to be. Part of that may be owing to the skill with which the reporters put Elder Snow at his ease during the first approximately five minutes of the interview where they talked with him about various innocuous things, such as where he got his middle name from. His middle name is Erastus. It is Elder Stephen Erastus Snow. And also his acquaintance and relationship with Elder Marlon Jensen. Another thing that may have led to Elder Snow's unprecedented openness and candor during this interview may have to do with the fact that he is just about to go out to pasture. He has reached the age of 70 where general authorities other than apostles are retired, or as the church likes to put it, they go to emeritus status, and Elder Snow will be officially receiving his emeritus status in October of 2019. In other words, just about a month from now. Elder Snow also seems like a genuinely nice person, and I think that openness and honesty come more naturally to him than perhaps to other general authorities in the church. Even so, and in spite of the openness with which he answers some of the questions, he is also somewhat opaque in regard to his answers to other of the questions. But if we take the time to parse out some of his statements, as we will be doing on tonight's episode, we can learn a great deal about Elder Snow's feelings and his thoughts regarding different things relating to the church, things that he says openly, and things that he only indicates strongly. The entirety of the interview takes about 40 minutes. We will not be going over the entire interview tonight. Rather, we will be going over a section of the interview that is only approximately 20 minutes in length. It is that 20 minutes in which Elder Snow makes so many interesting statements which we want to consider. Here is the very opening of the podcast. Play the tape. Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I'm joined today by our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. So there the two reporters introduce themselves to the audience. Then after about four and a half minutes or so of idle chit-chat with Elder Snow, the first subject is raised and the first question asked that we want to talk about tonight. And that has to do with Elder Snow's involvement with the church essays. Play the tape. Let me jump to a project that you were involved in. Um, what prompted the idea for the Gospel Topics essays? Well, I think the Brethren had known for some time, they'd kind of gotten behind the curve a bit with the Internet and the instantaneous access to information that we have nowadays. And uh, and in the old days, you know, those who were critical of the Church usually had to have some resources to put together a, uh, to print a book or a pamphlet or do a movie. 
but now anyone can self-publish. And so we were seeing, obviously, a lot of things coming out, sensationalizing different aspects of church history and, and other things. So the Brethren felt it was uh, really time where, where we really needed a safe place for members to go to learn about some of these uh, chapters uh, or incidents in our uh, history that had caused some questions or concerns. Stop the tape. Notice, please, the very first thing that Elder Snow says in response to the question about why did the church produce the essays is not because the church felt it was important for the members to know the truth about the church. Rather, the reason that is given is that the church had come to the point where it realized it was losing the information battle. The true history of the church, the history that the church had been trying for over a hundred years to hide from the members, was now being made available to the members by means of the internet. And it was specifically because the truth about the history of the church was being made available to large numbers of Mormons through the internet that the church finally got off the dime and they were behind the curve, as Elder Snow admits, they were behind the curve in this regard, but they finally got off the dime and decided they needed to present their own version of the history of the church on these troubling issues. No longer would it be satisfactory or acceptable for them to just be silent on these issues and hope that members would not find out about them. Members were finding out about them in spite of the best efforts of the church, and therefore, and only therefore, did the church decide to put up the church essays. As I have said before, the church was dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table because of the internet. In this interview, Elder Snow confirms not only that suspicion on my part, but also numerous other suspicions that I have had and that I have recorded about in prior podcasts. Play the tape. I mean, we're going to talk more about the essays, but did you right off the bat, did you worry about alienating or members who... Sure. Maybe we're not familiar about those controversial elements. Sure, sure. <laughs> that, was, that was part of it. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't worry much about those things. They don't. They don't have an interest in church history, and uh, you know, their the way they manage their faith and their belief. They just don't concern themselves with some of these uh, uh, past chapters of our history. Stop the tape. Now, faithful listeners to this program will know that for several years. I have been speculating based upon the evidence presented by the church and drawing reasonable inferences therefrom that the church does not want the faithful members, the people who do not have questions about church history, to know about the existence of these essays. They don't want them to know about the problems with the church. And yet, a sufficient number of members are becoming aware of these issues and are leaving the church because of them. It has reached critical mass to the point where the church felt they had to do something to present this information from a faithful perspective while still trying not to let other members who don't care about it, who aren't concerned about it, to not let them know about these issues in the first place. And therefore, the compromise was reached that they would produce these essays, they would not announce their existence, they would not appear on the front page of the church website, but they would appear three clicks deep in the church website. So much so, in fact, that you pretty much have to know where the essays are in order to find them. Frequently, people who are actually looking for the essays 
are not able to find them. And we hear of bishops, state presidents, other church leaders who even to this day are completely unaware of the existence of these essays. They are buried on the church website and this is why. So that the average member who is not concerned about these issues will not stumble upon them and have their testimony weakened because they realize that there are serious issues with church history. Play the tape. So you you weighed introducing problems to those people versus sort of helping people who already were concerned about those, and you decided to go ahead with the essays? Well, we felt like we were losing a lot of younger people, millennials especially, and we felt like we needed to do something about that. Stop the tape. Notice that Elder Snow says we felt like we were losing lots of younger people, primarily the millennials. Trust me, they didn't just feel like they were losing a lot of younger people. They knew they were losing a lot of younger people. And if you lose too many younger people, you're going to eventually not have any church left. And that is why the church felt that critical mass had been reached and they felt compelled to put up the essays on the church website. They would not have taken this extraordinary step of actually trying to be more transparent unless they felt they had to. Play the tape. And uh, do you open a website and put it all right there? Everything that's different about the church, you can go here to learn about it? That didn't seem like a very good idea. So. Stop the tape. Now, obviously, this is a humorous suggestion. Everybody laughs at it, the idea of opening up a website and putting on the website everything that's different about the church. I don't know. I would have thought when I grew up in the church, the church was actually proud of those things and those teachings and those doctrines and those practices that made the LDS church distinctive. But what we realize now is happening is that really, no, they're not. Even the idea of such a thing is laughable. And indeed, everybody laughs. Everybody gets the joke. Also, notice how he says that starting a website and putting up all the strange things or the things that are problematic would not be a good idea. This seems to be perhaps an unintentional slam at Fair Mormon, which does exactly that. On the Fair Mormon webpage, which deals with apologetics, you can find long lists of all the problems with church history, church doctrine, Mormonism in general. They attempt to provide answers there, but one of the problems is that people who go there looking for an answer to one question find hundreds of questions they had never thought of before. Obviously, the church considered this as an option, but decided that was not, repeat not, a good idea. Are you listening, Fair Mormon? So what did the church decide to do instead? Play the tape. We ultimately chose to use uh, really what had been a, a very poorly used database called Gospel Topics. And so we started to fold out the essays into that. And and, and it was pretty quiet for a while until uh, Race and the Priesthood was released, that essay, and uh, Nauvoo Polygamy. And then Gospel Topics became a very well-known database in the church. Yeah, and then some reporters started writing about yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, we remember the race in the priesthood one, yes. So yeah. how... Stop the tape. Notice how they decided to use a very poorly used, in other words, very infrequently clicked on database in the LDS Church website called Gospel Topics. They decided that would be a good place to release these essays. Why? Specifically because it was underused. It was not very well known. It was not accessed a lot. And everything was going fine and according to plan, or as Elder Snow says, everything was going quietly until 
two specific essays were released, the first one being the Race and Priesthood essay, which if memory serves was released in December of 2013, and subsequently the one about Nauvoo polygamy. And the reason those essays became more well-known is not because the church wanted them to become well-known, it's not because the church publicized them, it's not because the church did anything different with these essays than they did with the other essays that they were unfolding on the Gospel Topics webpage. It is because the press took notice of them, and the media published about them. As Peggy Fletcher Stack says, because some reporters started writing about it. And yes, everybody laughs at that too, because that's part of the joke. This was not the intention of the church that these should become well-known. Rather, it was the unintended result when media got involved and became aware of these essays. But in spite of the media's involvement and the media's publishing on these two particular essays, it still remains a fact that the vast majority of active Mormons are unaware, blissfully unaware, of the existence of these essays or any of the other essays on the Gospel Topics webpage, which is exactly how the church wants it to be. Now the discussion shifts into how the specific subjects were chosen on which the Gospel Topics essays were written. Play the tape. How did you, how, how did your department and you decide which topics to, uh, to it, choose? It was, uh, there was a lot of conversation with the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, this happened in May of 2012. A list was approved. Uh, Did you put together the list? That was, uh, Elder Jensen was still in office then. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, really, uh, after a lot of uh, discussion, he proposed a list based on what he had heard, uh, and that was approved. Please notice that Elder Snow uses language that seems to include the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency in coming up with this list. But if you replay this piece, you will notice that at no time does he actually say that they came up with any of the ideas. In fact, as we listen further in that clip I just played, it is clear that the list was assembled by Elder Marlon Jensen and that he didn't do it based upon what he was hearing from the Quorum of the Twelve. Rather, he was doing it based upon what he had heard from other sources. And we know that this was primarily from sources provided by John DeLynn and the extensive polling he did regarding the issues that caused people to leave the church. That's where this list came from. The leaders of the church served only as an approving body, not as a source for this information, it appears. Play the tape. What was the process of getting them written and then approved? Uh, We wanted to be sure we had the best thinking and the best uh, educated people on some of these issues and most current sometimes. and most current mm-hmm. uh, the most current research so we went out and and for the most part retained uh, scholars outside the outside church employment stop the tape did elder snow really just say that if i heard him correctly he said that when the time came to write these essays they wanted to have the smartest and the best educated people write them so they went outside of the church that means they <laughs> that means people who were not employed by the church were retained to write the essays. This means that the people who are in the church history department, i.e. the church employees, the historians who are employed by the church, they are not the smartest and the best educated according to this inadvertent slip by Elder Snow. Let's play it again and see if I actually got that right. Play the tape again. Uh, we wanted to be sure we had the best thinking and the best 
educated people on some of these issues. And most current sometimes. And most current, mm -hmm. uh, the most current research. So we went out and, and for the most part, retained uh, scholars outside the outside church employment. Ouch. Playing that a second time sounded even worse than the first time. I wonder how the employees of the church historian's office felt when they heard this particular part of the interview. Spank you. Spank you very much. Going on with the interview. And asked them to do a draft, uh, an essay, which then came back to a, a committee of uh, 70 and also staff in the church history department, scholars and historians. We worked those over very carefully, kept checking back with the uh, author to make sure we weren't doing anything that was not right. And uh, then those drafts were sent to the first uh, to the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency for final review and approval. So it sounds like the process was that the original essay, or at least the rough draft of the essay, was written by a person outside the church historian's department because they wanted the best thinking and the best educated people on these issues to write these essays. But then after the best educated people wrote the essays, it was then given over to the Committee of the Seventy, which is general authorities on which Elder Snow served, as well as the staff at the church historian's office, to work it over in order to make it somehow conform better to the final product that they presented to the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency in order to get their approval. Now, one might wonder, if you have the best educated people writing the essays in the first place, why are the less educated people having anything to do with rewriting the original essay? Does it have something to do with the fact that it's after that rewrite that it is then submitted to the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve for approval? And that the original essay has to be reworded and couched in a certain way in order to get that approval? Mm, my guess is yes. Continuing with the interview. And don't you think... I mean, we have heard certainly that lots of people who read the original, uh, I mean, the the topic essays thought, oh, this is just the historical department. This has not been approved by... <laughs> have you, haven't you had to reiterate over and over that actually no, the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve approved them? Yeah, I thought it's interesting. I, I guess I, I wouldn't have expected that people would have thought that a rogue his, history department would go, would go do something like that. Certainly in the church, that would be impossible. Now, this is going to be an important part of the interview because Peggy Fletcher Stack, first off, brings up the issue that there were some members who read the essays and thought this is not official church doctrine because there's nothing on it that says it's approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Elder Snow agrees with her because he's aware of these types of people too in the church, but says it's silly because what were they thinking, that there would be some kind of rogue history department in the church? This also has to do with why the title of tonight's episode is called Elder Snow Goes Rogue in homage to this particular statement by him in this interview. But notice how silly it is to think that there would be a rogue history department in the church, that that simply could not happen because of the way the church is set up. This will become important later when Elder Snow suggests that even though it's ridiculous that there would be a rogue history department in the church, that nevertheless there was a rogue artistic department in the church when it came to painting pictures and depictions of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. But at this point, Elder Snow is going to go on and mention why it is that it's impossible for such a thing to happen in the church, that there would be a rogue history department because of all the levels of review and approval that are required for something to be published in an official 
church publication or on the official church website. Play the tape. And, uh, you know, every step of the way they were reviewing it and, and reviewed it and approved it, what went, what was published ultimately. So uh, it, it was unfortunate that we couldn't some way uh, indicate that, but that was the case. Uh, every one of the 12 in First Presidency reviewed them. Stop the tape. Here, Elder Snow starts being less than transparent. He says it is unfortunate that they could not in some way indicate that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve had approved the essays, which indeed, according to him, and he's in a position to know, they actually had done, they actually had approved the essays. But he's saying, hey, it's unfortunate that we couldn't in some way indicate that. Well, that doesn't make any sense because, of course, they could in some way indicate it. And that would be by putting on the essays themselves that these essays are approved by, drumroll please, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They could do that very easily. The fact is not that they couldn't do it. The fact is they chose not to do it. And the fact is that they chose not to do it in spite of the fact that their failure to do it was causing confusion among members of the church thinking maybe these were not approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Which raises the obvious question, if these essays were approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and if members of the church were being confused about the authenticity and the authority of these essays because they did not state that they were approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, what countervailing interest was at play to prevent the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles from simply stating that fact in the essays themselves? And the answer to that question can probably be boiled down to two words, plausible deniability. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve do not want these essays to state that they are approved by them because they want to have distance between themselves and the essays and be able to point to the historians as the authors of these essays in case there are problems down the road. And indeed, the essays did generate some problems among faithful members of the church. Two of the essays in particular, which will be talked about in the next part of the interview. Play the tape. And which of the essays proved to be the most controversial? Was it uh, the race issue, the race one, or, or as you say, Nauvoo polygamy? Which one? Uh, Th- those, the most those were pushback. those two, of course, generated the most attention. Yeah. Uh, race and the priesthood, to me, wasn't. I mean, of course, I lived through it, but for the younger generation, that yeah. was new. That was different, and that was uh, there was a lot of uh, learning about uh, what had taken place up to the 1978 revelation with President Kimball. Stop the tape. It strikes Elder Snow as surprising that the essay on the priesthood and temple ban for blacks was an essay that raised a lot of controversy. And the reason he's surprised about it is because he lived through it. And because he lived through it, he was fully aware of all the ins and outs of this ban and its subsequent lifting in 1978 by President Kimball. What goes unstated here is why this episode in LDS history should be a surprise to people who are not as old as Elder Snow and who did not live through it? The answer is simple, because the LDS Church does not talk about it. If the LDS Church talked about its history, its full history, 
the negative aspects of its history as well as the positive aspects of its history, then all the members would be fully apprised of the race and priesthood ban that existed in this church up until 1978 and its subsequent lifting by President Kimball. But the fact that this essay caused a great deal of controversy among members of the church who did not live through those events suggests strongly that the LDS Church does not talk about things regarding its history that the LDS Church does not want to talk about. Now certainly there have been times in the past 40 years when leaders of the church, including President Hinckley, have decried the evils of bigotry and racism. But never in those comments have they even mentioned the priesthood and temple ban which existed in the LDS church for over 100 years. And if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who joined the church, say, maybe just 20 years ago instead of 40 years ago, which is when I joined the church, if I had joined the church in the past 20 years and never heard any leaders of the church talk about the priesthood and temple ban against blacks and only heard leaders of the church talk about how bad racism is and how we should never be bigoted or prejudiced against people based upon the color of their skin, then yes, I can definitely understand why such a person would be extremely confused when the church came out with its essay on the priesthood and temple ban. Under the circumstances and the way the church has played this out historically, it makes sense that that essay would cause a great deal of controversy. Play the tape. I think probably the one that generated the most attention after that, or even maybe more than that, was Nauvoo polygamy. because Specifically a lot of members, Joseph Smith's polygamy. Right. Yeah. Interesting enough, people seem settled in the church with Utah polygamy. They don't worry too much about Utah polygamy because they descend, many of them, from grandparents or great-grandparents that practice plural marriage. But they didn't really understand the beginning of it very well, what happened at Nauvoo, how it was introduced, what Joseph Smith's role was in, uh, in practicing plural marriage himself. That was, that was not well known, and that, that jarred a lot of people in the church. That's always surprised me that it does for some reason, although we can talk about the particulars of how Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, but that for some reason that threw some longtime members. Is it just because they didn't know about I, I it, think you think? or people? Some, I, I was surprised by that, frankly, but I like history, and I study history, and I read. And I would expect most educated members that had studied history a little bit would know that, but mm -hmm. I was surprised how many did not. Stop the tape. Here we get to the issue of why it is that so many members of the church, indeed the vast majority, a faithful members of the LDS Church were caught completely off guard when learning that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy in Nauvoo. And coupled with this observation is the tacit blaming of church members for not knowing about it. Why? Because they did not study enough. Now, it is unclear why it is that going to church for three hours every Sunday, every Sunday of the year, plus 10 hours of general conference two times a year for an entire person's life would not provide the opportunity to hear about the fact that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy in Nauvoo. But indeed, that is the case. And the reason for that is obvious, because the church has made a strategic decision to not mention it to the members. That's why it's a surprise when they learn about it. Now, I was one of these people who, like Elder Snow, was interested in history, did study history, did know about Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy well before the issuance of the essay on the church website. 
I will confess I did not know all of the little details that make it so problematic and that indeed make it a subject that the church did not want the members to know about. This interview will go into a few of those details here in a minute. But I decided at one point a few years ago when I was hearing about how surprised members of the church were to learn about Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy to ask my adult daughter who had grown up in the church, who had attended Sunday school, who had gone to seminary, who had gone to all the meetings that every young person is supposed to go through from the time they're baptized, and even before if you include primary, all the way up, if she knew that Joseph Smith had practiced polygamy. And I was surprised to find out that her answer was no. She had no idea that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. It was never taught her. And the reason it was never taught her is because the church never wanted her or any of the other members to know about it. But one might say, isn't there a section in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, that talks all about polygamy and plural marriage that was given by Joseph Smith back in 1843? And don't the members of the church go over the standard works and indeed the Doctrine and Covenants once every four years as part of the Sunday school class? How is it then that members of the church could not know about Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy given the fact that it's right there in the Doctrine and Covenants for crying out loud? Well, the answer to that is simple, and I know this because I taught gospel doctrine on a number of occasions, and back in 2009, I believe it was, when I was teaching church history, I came to section 132, and what I found out in the teacher's manual that is issued and published by the LDS Church is that the teacher is not supposed to go through the entirety of section 132. In fact, the students are not assigned to read the entire section 132. They are assigned to read only the first half and not to get into any of those sticky issues that are raised in the last half like the law of Sarah. For example, not only is the teacher supposed to restrict discussion to the first half of that section, the teacher is supposed to interpret and talk about that section not in terms of plural marriage but in terms of celestial marriage. Now the fact is that back when Joseph Smith was receiving this revelation and in the early days of the church, celestial marriage was the same thing as plural marriage. They meant the same thing. Celestial marriage was plural marriage, plural marriage was celestial marriage, and it was not until around the 1930s, I believe it was, that the idea was hit upon to say that celestial marriage no longer means plural marriage, it now means eternal marriage between one man and a woman. So much so did the church not want the subject of plural marriage in Nauvoo by Joseph Smith talked about in church that in the Sunday school lesson on section 132, the lesson that would naturally be devoted to that very issue, the church had in its teacher's manual a notation to the teacher that the teacher was not supposed to bring up the subject of plural marriage and instead talk about eternal marriage. If I recall correctly, there was also a notation that if somebody in the class brought up the subject of plural marriage, that subject was supposed to be sidelined by the teacher and not explored in depth in class. So this, in short, is why so many members of the church are surprised to learn that Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage in Nauvoo is because the church took steps not only to not mention it to the members of the church, but also to prevent the members of the church from learning about it, even when ostensibly studying the revelation received by Joseph Smith that authorized and, yes, indeed, commanded the practice of plural marriage in Nauvoo. I am shocked, shocked to find out that plural marriage is going on here. Play the tape. I think part of it may have been those who, many may have known Joseph Smith, the founder, had plural wives, but the age of the women, right. the fact that some of them were married to other men, it, it's and, and also it was shrouded in secrecy for a long time and denied. I think that that 
the essay those, perf- helped explain yeah, that. Those, those aspects have certainly made it more difficult. Yeah. And we tried to be upfront as possible. Notice the two caveats. We tried to be as upfront as possible. Not just one caveat, but two. Tried to be as upfront as possible. Uh, you know, if we had a chance to rewrite it, there's probably a sentence or two we'd have changed. But, uh, <laughs> uh, we were pretty transparent. Again, notice the caveat, not transparent, but pretty transparent. And, but we, but we, we were interpreting these from a faith-based perspective, of course. Mm-hmm. Stop the tape. I want to make a couple of comments here. First off, Elder Snow is being very clear that they are not being completely transparent in the writing of these essays, and specifically the essay on Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy in Nauvoo. He says they tried to be as upfront as possible. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What is preventing them from being completely upfront? They are as upfront as possible. What is making it impossible for them to be completely upfront? Could the hindrance possibly have anything to do with the review process and the fact they have to submit it to the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency for final authorization for publication. Is that what it is he's referring to when he says we were as upfront as possible? It doesn't sound like he's saying he was the cause for it not being completely upfront, but there was some other obstruction. And indeed, that obstruction was probably upriver. Another thing I want to mention is that, yes, indeed, the very fact that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy just alone is a surprise to a great many Latter-day Saints, as I talked about previously in this podcast. But when you get into the details, it becomes even more problematic. The details about the youth of some of his brides, his child brides, 14 years old in some instances, the sheer number of women that he married, which is not completely ascertained, but numbers around 33, and the fact that approximately 11 of those 33 wives to which Joseph Smith was married were already married to other men at the time Joseph Smith married them. These details not only are shockers to people who are learning about it for the first time, but also reveal the likely reason that the church kept these details under wraps until they were forced to bring them out in a church essay hidden three clicks deep on the church website and only in response to the fact that people were finding out about this information anyway because of the easy access to this information made possible by the advent of the internet. One other thing I want to mention is the public denials that Joseph Smith made of his practice of polygamy. The public denials that he made even while behind the scenes and behind closed doors he was actively engaged in the practice of plural marriage. At one and the same time, while the church was hiding the fact that Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage and certainly hiding the details of his practice of plural marriage, the church was publishing Joseph Smith's denials of his practice of plural marriage. I remember I read the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith within a year of my baptism into the church, and I remember very clearly reading in that book Joseph Smith's public denials of the practice. He claimed that he was being accused of it, but that it was not true. What a shame it is to be accused of having seven wives when I can find only one. So this also plays into why it's such a shock to members of the church to learn that Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage because during the entire course of their life and membership in the church, not only have they not been told about it, not only has that information been kept from them, but the information that has been made available to them are the denials of Joseph Smith that he practiced plural marriage in the first place. Play the tape. Um, I want to go back to the race essay for a minute. Um, 
that obviously was written very, very carefully. And I, it, does, it does go to the heart of some issues in the church, one of them being uh, could a, a, a Latter-day Saint prophet make a mistake on something so large? And explaining the context helps, but the essay stops short of saying um, Brigham Young was a racist or, you know, it's, it, it really is very carefully worded. Stop the tape. Here, Peggy Fletcher Stack puts her finger squarely on the primary issue, the problematic issue relating to the essay on the priesthood and temple ban, the race restriction on blacks in the LDS church. We know the ban was put in place by Brigham Young. We know the ban was lifted over 100 years later by a purported revelation to Spencer W. Kimball. The question is, was that ban correct when it was put in place and all the years that it was in effect, or was that a mistake of men? Is that a mistake that a prophet made? And if a prophet can make a mistake of such magnitude, relating to what it is that God wants and who God wants salvation to be extended to, how can we have confidence in any other doctrinal pronouncement made by a prophet of God? This is the issue raised by this incident in church history and the essay that explores it. And this is why, as we go on with the interview, we find out that the language that was used in discussing this issue was so carefully chosen. And indeed, as Elder Snow is going to say, they were balancing it on the edge of a knife. Why? Because if you fall off on one edge of that knife, then you find out that prophets can make doctrinal pronouncements that are in error. But if you go off on the other side of the knife and say, no, it was from God, now we're throwing God under the bus and saying God was a racist and he was fine with his one and only true living church upon the face of the entire earth being racist for over a century. This is the balance of the knife that's going to be explored here and why it is they had to be so careful in the use of their language. Play the tape. Uh, was that that section about Brigham Young's involvement, was that carefully script written and did the church leaders very carefully have a problem with any of it or the challenge is we just don't know enough. We wish there had been more records left, that there had been more who had spoken out public about it during that time. It wasn't really until 1852 that they went public about plural marriage. And so that period during Nauvoo, there just isn't a lot of information. It would have been much more helpful if uh, if we'd had more information on it. Actually, I was mentioning the race issue. The, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. The, the race issue being well, and, carefully and the, worded so as... And again, uh, yeah. with, with race, we kind of tried to balance that on a knife's edge and because we just don't know again i'm sorry i got on a tangent there That's but okay. we we tried to really balance uh the best we could uh, on the information we knew without trying to you know we just don't know uh, there's those who say of course that it was uh, that it was uh, it was a uh, revelation to the prophet brigham young and there's others that there's other camps that say it was just a mistake. We just don't have any direction on it, and we, you know, some feel we've threw a Brigham Young under the bus. <laughs> others say you didn't, you weren't hard enough on Brigham Young. Right. So it's really it, there just isn't enough information on that race and the priesthood. Stop the tape. 
How many times can Elder Snow say that they just don't know, that they don't have enough information, that they don't have any direction? Not only about plural marriage, which Elder Snow at first mistakenly thinks that Peggy Fletcher Stack is talking about instead of the race and priesthood essay, but also about the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. This is the mantra. We just don't know enough about it, and therefore we cannot give a hard and fast answer. Now, think about it. This is a classic example of where the theory and the presentation of the LDS Church differs drastically from the reality of the LDS Church. The presentation of the LDS Church is that we have a prophet of God upon the face of the earth who receives direct revelation from God and then gives that revelation to his children. And not only in the LDS Church do we have one prophet, we have 15 prophets and they are comprised in the three-member First Presidency and the 12-member Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. What is it that Elder Snow has just described was the process of writing these essays in the first place, including these two essays, one on polygamy and one on race and the priesthood. The process is they have the experts who really know what they're talking about who are not in the church history department. They're not employees of the church. They have them write the rough draft. The rough draft is then worked over by the people in the church history department. And then what happens? It is submitted to all 15 prophets, seers, and revelators, the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 for their review, for them to make suggestions. They incorporate those suggestions. It finally gets the stamp of approval from not one, but all 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. And yet, the mantra is, we just don't know enough about it to give a solid answer as to why it is Joseph Smith practiced polygamy in Nauvoo, and as to why it is the church had for over a hundred years a priesthood and temple ban on people who were of African descent. The issue to my mind is not, why do we not know? The issue is, how can we not know? It sometimes seems that borrowing a phrase from my childhood in Texas, the prophets at the head of this church are all hat and no cattle. They can provide us with no revelation from God. They can give us no certain answers. The best they can do is that when they are forced to talk about uncomfortable issues related to the church and its history, all they can say is, we don't know. Once again, this brings into crystal focus the difference between the theory of the LDS Church and what it presents itself to be to the outside world as well as to its members and the reality of the LDS Church. We have prophets who don't prophesy. We have seers who don't see. We have revelators who don't reveal. They just don't know. Play the tape. But we do know that after that, it, as the country became more racist, it, it, it just settled into the to the lore of the church or to the history of the church and and after a time it, they felt like they'd have to have a revelation to change it stop the presses it turns out we actually do know something after all and what we know is not why the priesthood ban was placed into effect whether it was god who's the racist or whether it was brigham young who's the racist what we know is that it was a racist policy it was put into place in a racist country that continued for over 100 years to have difficulty with racism that went through a civil rights movement primarily in the 1950s and the 1960s and that because this was a racist policy in a country that had so many issues with racism that it sort of faded into the background, it sort of blended in, it sort of made sense that this racist policy was in fact a doctrine revealed from God, and because it was taken to be a doctrine revealed from God, it was determined that a revelation from God was needed to overturn it. 
That's why a revelation was needed is because it was believed to be a revelation from God in the first place. Let's be clear on that. If it was believed to have not been a revelation from God in the first place, it would not have required a revelation to overturn it. It was a racist revelation that made sense in a racist nation. It is common to hear church leaders, even in the essay, call this merely a policy and never a doctrine. That's the view from 2020 hindsight. But consider this. If at the time the priesthood and temple ban was in effect, it was considered to be only a policy. It would not have been considered necessary to have a revelation to overturn it. Policies can come and go with a stroke of a pen. A revelation is required to overturn a previous revelation. The very fact that it was believed a revelation was needed to change it shows it was not believed to have been a policy while it was in effect, but only in retrospect. Play the tape. And then attempts to justify it through some theological there thing that had been right, uh, that still circulates to right. some degree. So the essay was pretty clear about that, mm-hmm. right. that those were never a part of church doctrine. And it did seem to set a context, at least, of the time that Brigham Young was living in and the conditions of what were going on and in the state and things like that. Now, at this point in the interview, there's some crosstalk, and there are a number of questions that are posed which do not get answered. This is one of the problems of having two people conducting an interview and wanting to ask a number of questions without giving the person answering the chance to answer completely each individual question. Now, from Elder Snow's point of view, this is a good thing because as long as he's getting multiple questions asked to him at the same time, he can pick and choose which ones he feels comfortable responding to. One of the things that Peggy Fletcher Stack says here is about the essay on race and the priesthood and how it says that it was never a doctrine. The priesthood ban was never a doctrine. That much is true. The essay does say that the priesthood ban was never a doctrine. But the fact of the matter is that actually it was a doctrine of the church. In spite of all the expertise they had in developing the race and priesthood essay, they somehow never got around to mentioning the 1949 first presidency statement, which declares unequivocally that this was in fact a doctrine. It was not simply a policy. And here is the complete text of the 1949 statement from the First Presidency. It is dated August 17, 1949. It is signed by all three members of the First Presidency at the time. It is authoritative and binding on the church. That's what a statement from the First Presidency means, or certainly at least what it used to mean. Here it is, August 17, 1949. The attitude of the church with reference to Negroes remains as it has always stood. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy. Now, please notice this. Not only is it saying it's doctrine, it is distinguishing it from a policy and saying this is not just a policy. Back to the first presidency statement. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded what? The doctrine of the church from the days of its organization. And what is this commandment from the Lord on which is founded the doctrine of the church? This is what it is, to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. Let me read that one sentence again. It is critical. It is the second sentence in this first presidency statement from 1949. Quote, it is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization, to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, 
but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. That is the money quote from this first presidency statement. It goes on to say, The prophets of the Lord have made several statements as to the operation of the principle. President Brigham Young said, Why are so many of the inhabitants of the earth cursed with the skin of blackness? It comes in consequence of their fathers rejecting the power of the holy priesthood and the law of God. They will go down to death. And when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain, and they will then come up and possess the priesthood and receive all the blessings which we now are entitled to. Period. End of quote from Brigham Young. The first presidency statement continues. President Wilford Woodruff made the following statement. The day will come when all that race will be redeemed and possess all the blessings which we now have. So President Wilford Woodruff was a little bit more general than President Brigham Young. Brigham Young made it clear the day would come, but it would only come after all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the Holy Priesthood. In other words, at the end of the millennium, after every single white person or non-black person had received the priesthood or had the opportunity to receive the priesthood, then and only then would the curse be removed from the seed of Cain, and then they could come up and possess the priesthood and receive all the blessings which we now are entitled to. The essay says that Brigham Young said that they would come when the blacks would receive the priesthood, but they do not quote this in its entirety and give the timing that Brigham Young predicted. The fact that in 1978 the priesthood ban was lifted and black people were then able to receive the priesthood and go to the temple is not a fulfillment of what Brigham Young said. It is actually a contradiction of what he said. It's a fulfillment in the sense that he said the day would come when the blacks would receive the priesthood, or as he put it, the seed of Cain. It is a contradiction in the sense that it happened way, way, way before Brigham Young said it would happen, and way before Brigham Young said that it could possibly happen, because as of 1978, all those people who were not the seed of Cain had not yet had the opportunity to receive the priesthood. I think it's understandable why they don't want to quote Brigham Young in his entirety in this regard. Now the conversation will shift to Joseph Smith's use of a seer stone. Play the tape. What about, um, I remember a news conference where there was with you and the seer stones. Did the seer stones <laughs> cause, uh, and for our listeners, do you want to explain what seer stones are? Well, uh, Joseph Smith uh, used a seer stone in the translation of the Book and of Mormon. what is it? It's a, it's a rock. Uh, just uh, uh-huh. I've held it, uh, the one he used. It's about the size of an egg. It looks about the shape of an egg. has some uh, uh, stripes in it. Um, pretty ordinary-looking rock that you could probably find a dozen in any stream bed if you looked long enough. <laughs> Here, Elder Snow downplays the significance of the seer stone. It appears he wants to focus on the fact of how ordinary it is, that it's just a rock, is his expression, and that you could find a bunch of similar stones in a riverbed if you simply took the time to look. But that is not how Joseph Smith viewed his seer stone. In fact, this very seer stone. He viewed it as special. He viewed it as having remarkable properties. He viewed it as an object by which he could find lost objects hidden treasure, and translate ancient texts. We know that this was not just a rock 
to Joseph Smith because, according to Martin Harris, during the translation of the first 116 pages, when Martin Harris was acting as scribe, they took a break from the dictation and they were out throwing rocks in the river and Martin Harris found a rock that looked very much like Joseph Smith's seer stone in the riverbed. Yes, they are common. But Martin Harris took that stone, switched it out for Joseph Smith's seer stone, put the new rock in the hat. Joseph Smith puts his face over the hat, tries to dictate, and is unable to. And he exclaims to Martin Harris, what is going on? I can't translate. Everything is as dark as Egypt. And it is at this point that Martin Harris admits that he'd swapped out the rock, gives him the real rock, and Joseph Smith proceeds to translate. So even a look-alike rock is not the same kind of rock to Joseph Smith. It is not just a rock. It does have supernatural qualities, at least in the way that Joseph Smith used it, not only to translate the Book of Mormon, but to find hidden treasure. Play the tape. And uh, they were quite common amongst uh, the early, during the 19th century, that was very common for leaders of the church to have a seer stone. How did Joseph Smith use it? He used it to, to, to have words appear, kept it in a hat, uh, and uh, uh, would look at the, the, the stone to see words appear uh, for the Book of Mormon. And, uh, so a kind know, of magic stone? <laughs> well, no, that's not the way we choose to recognize them. But I've always said, you know, if we man can make words appear on an iPhone, and, you know, if we, he, God can make words appear on a rock, I think. <laughs> I wonder what those plans are like. <laughs> rock. But, no. When that was revealed, I mean, when that was uh, the news conference. And, and you showed the stone, the right? Stone, the stone, once again, there are some overlapping questions. Peggy asks if this was a magic rock, and Elder Snow laughs good-naturedly and attempts to say that, no, that's not the way they choose to frame it. But actually, what else can you say is that it's a magic rock? Joseph Smith obviously saw it as having magical properties. Now, at some point, it seems that Joseph Smith attributed those magical properties to God's inspiration and direction. It is not clear whether he did that back when he was using the stone to seek for lost objects and buried treasure. But at some point, either during the translation of the Book of Mormon or thereafter, he attributed the ability to translate translate by means of that stone to the gift and power of God. So yes, at some point Joseph Smith attributed the magical properties of the rock to God, and yet it's hard to get away from the idea that yes, Joseph Smith did believe this rock had special properties and no other rock would do, unless it was another special rock. He had several of these seer stones, but they had to be specific stones that had these special properties, some might say magical properties, that it would allow Joseph Smith to see things in them. Peggy Fletcher Stack is now going to go into the question of whether this essay or the article in the Enzyme about the revelation of the church's possession of the seer stone and its use in the translation of the Book of Mormon had a negative impact on anybody's faith. Play the tape. Did mm -hmm. that cause people to wonder about the church at all? or Well, not much had been said in the 20th century right. about the seer stone. Right. And because it seemed kind of different, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. as you've uh, kind of pointed out here. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. uncommon. It wasn't more accepted in the 19th century, but the right. 20th century, it was seemingly, it was seeming to be a little strange. Stop the tape. Let's parse that out a bit. What Elder Snow is saying is that because the seer stone and Joseph's misuse of it seemed a little bit strange or a little bit different in the 20th century, the church did not talk about it. He says not much 
was said about it. Well, obviously he means by the church. So what we learned from this, using the seer stone as a specific instance, the church has followed a general principle that anything that seems strange or different to the members of the church or to the outside world, in other words, anything that puts the church in a negative light or a questionable light, the church makes a point of not talking about. In other words, the church suppresses information about the church that might make it look different, that might make it look strange, that might cause people to question its divinity. But suddenly, all that changed a few years ago with relation to the seer stone, and Elder Snow is actually going to tell us why it is the church decided to go public with the seer stone and even have a photo op of the rock published in the Enzyme magazine. Play the tape. And so... But ultimately, we felt like people needed to know that because people were talking about it. Stop the tape. Did you hear what Elder Snow just admitted? The reason the church finally, after over 150 years, went public with information about the Seer Stone is not because it was the right thing to do, is not because it was the truth and they owed the members of the church the truth about the way the Book of Mormon was produced and translated. No, it was very simple. It was because... People were talking about it. In other words, people were finding out the truth anyway through sources outside the church. The church is squashing this information. The church is sitting on this information. The church is not making it known to the members of the church. But members of the church are finding out about it anyway because of the internet, i.e. because people are talking about it. And therefore, only because people are talking about it did the church finally make the decision to go public with the story about the seer stone. The transparency that the church is now displaying is a transparency that was thrust upon them by the internet. It is not something they are doing in good faith. It is not something they are doing because it's the right thing to do. It's because it's something now that they have to do and they are trying to put the best spin on it possible even while they bury it three clicks deep on the church website and try and make it as faith-promoting as they possibly can. Play the tape. And uh, we took photographs of it. We put those in the, in the volumes of the Joseph Smith papers. There's also photographs in the museum now of it and uh, back at the Priesthood Restoration site in Pennsylvania. So we think that's part of the story and people need to, to know that. So here, Elder Snow says the reason that he's supposed to say as to why they went public with the story about the seer stone, because it's part of the story of the church and people need to know about it. Unfortunately, he just let it slip that the real reason they went public with it is because people were talking about it. But saying that it's part of the story and the members need to know is also problematic because it has been part of the story for over 150 years. Members presumably needed to know it during that time, and yet the church has remained silent until the internet. Now, members for years had been told that the translation was done differently than that. Could you explain how members well, generally were taught? Well, a lot of it I've found goes to the art. The way artists have depicted it over the years is the way a yeah. lot of us tend to think of of how the Book of Mormon was translated. And uh, I'm not just sure it was... The only thing Joseph said that was uh, translated by the gift and power of God. But artists have been fairly liberal in the past about interpreting their, you know, the blanket in between right. Joseph and uh, Oliver and the plates laying out there. Uh, 
So there's been a lot of different interpretation of it, less so from uh, the hierarchy of the church and more so from artists that have tried to depict it. So this is the part of the program where Elder Snow now tries to blame the artists for members misunderstanding how the Book of Mormon was translated. It was not the fault of the leaders of the church. They weren't really saying much about it, but it was these darn artists, and they were being so liberal in their interpretation of how they depicted the translation of the Book of Mormon that caused the problem. This simply will not do. Elder Snow has already said that the church had the seer stone in the First Presidency vault continuously since the saints arrived in Salt Lake City, or at least since they bought the vault. I don't know where they kept it before it, but the church has had continual possession of this seer stone. They've known about the seer stone. They've known exactly what the seer stone was used for, and they've known how Joseph Smith used it. It will not do at this point to blame the artists. Now, a picture may be worth a thousand words, but every artistic depiction of a church history event is not something that is put in church magazines without the knowledge of the leadership of the church. This is not a situation where artists somehow sneak into the church buildings and get access to the Ensign magazine and put their artwork into the Ensign magazine unbeknownst to the leaders of the church and the editors of the magazine and somehow they just sort of end up being published and sent out willy-nilly to all the members of the church and the members of the church look at it and they see all this unauthorized art depicting the Book of Mormon translation and think well that's how it really was translated. That's not how this works. And the funny thing is, is that earlier, Elder Snow rightly made fun of people who didn't think that the church actually supported these essays that he was involved in being published on the church website. He made fun of it, as you recall, saying that they must have thought that there was a rogue history department in the church. And he said, that's not even possible because everything has to be submitted and reviewed ad infinitum by the leaders of the church. The artwork is no different. Any artwork is commissioned by the leaders of the church, and they are the ones who detail and specify exactly how it's supposed to look. They may not talk about the color scheme, okay, but they are definitely involved in what is depicted and how it is depicted, and ultimately, almost all these pieces of art become owned by the church. They have the copyright on the church. This is the intellectual reserve arm of the church that has the copyright on all this artwork. Artists are told by leaders of the church exactly what it is they're going to depict, how they depict it, and then they work closely with the artist. And if the artist comes up with something and some sketches that the leaders don't like, then they're going to tell them, no, we don't want it that way. You need to correct it and do it this way. So at the very end of this quote where Elder Snow says, no, it's not really the leaders of the church, it's the artist. He is creating a false separation between the two. The artists are not separated from the church leaders. The artists are directed by the church leaders and the church hierarchy. The representations that the church puts in the church magazine are sanctioned, approved, and authorized by the church leaders. This is not the artist's fault. This is the leader's fault. And remember, these are the same leaders who know about the seer stone and yet are commissioning and authorizing and directing the depiction of the translation of the Book of Mormon for over a hundred years in church periodicals that has absolutely no mention and no depiction of the use of a seer stone. Play the tape. Okay. But yeah, this, this interpretation, this uh, uh, wasn't the one we generally heard in Sunday school. Urim and Thummim, right? 
Here, Elder Snow seems to contradict himself a bit. He says that this method of translation is not the one we generally heard in Sunday school. So it isn't just the artistic depictions, is it, Elder Snow? No, it's actually the correlated curriculum. And who correlates that curriculum for Sunday school, Elder Snow? Well, you know the answer to that as well as I do. It is the leaders of the church. This is not the version of the translation that we have generally heard in Sunday school. When you have a church like the LDS church that is so top to bottom, so hierarchical, so structured, and everything has to be approved by the leaders of the church, it has certain benefits as an organizational system, but one of those benefits is not, repeat, not being able to put the responsibility for anything that appears in church publications at the feet of anybody other than the top leadership of the church. Going on. Urim and Thummim. Back in the day, the, they thought of the Urim and Thummim and the, the seer stone. They called them interpreters. So they were all thrown together in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. But. So that's all they're going to talk about the seer stone. But before we leave that subject, I want to make a couple of observations. The first one is this. Elder Snow in 2019 is now able to admit the historically accepted fact that Joseph Smith used a seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon as we have it today. There's still some question about the original 116 pages and what was used there, but we are pretty much certain at this point that the seer stone was used to translate the Book of Mormon that we have today. The question it raises is, why did Joseph Smith use a seer stone? Now, it's problematic enough that it's the same seer stone he used earlier in life in order to find lost objects and in order to find buried treasure, including gold buried in the earth, which sounds strangely similar to gold plates buried in the earth. But the problems don't stop there. According to Joseph Smith, the interpreters, i.e. the Urim and Thummim, two stones were buried with the gold plates. And in other places, we read about his description of a breastplate being buried with the gold plates, as well as the sword of Laban being buried with the gold plates. But let's focus on these two stones, these interpreters that were buried with the gold plates, because Joseph Smith says there is a reason that these interpreters were buried with the gold plates. And the reason was, guess what? In order to use them to translate the Book of Mormon. If we go to the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith History, You will find this in your scriptures. It is verse 35. Also, that there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. Now, these are different stones than Joseph Smith's seer stone. That is completely unrelated to these two stones that he described as being buried with the Book of Mormon. He goes on with his description. They were deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times. So actually having these stones and being able to use them is what makes you a seer in ancient times, according to Joseph Smith. And that makes sense because they are seer stones. So possession of one and use of one necessarily makes somebody a seer. But now for the final sentence. This is the one I've been aiming toward. And that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. So God has prepared these seer stones for the purpose of translating the book. That's why he arranged to have them buried with the gold plates so they could be used by Joseph Smith in translating the gold plates. And yet, as far as the Book of Mormon that we have today, it appears that Joseph Smith never once used These stones, which he describes as being in silver bows fastened to a breastplate, he never used them once in translating. 
the Book of Mormon. Instead, he used his trusty seer stone, the one that he found digging a well many years earlier. And so we are left with a question. If God prepared the Urim and Thummim for the purpose of translating the book, why did Joseph Smith never use the Urim and Thummim for the purpose of translating the book? Why instead did he substitute a different method of translating the book that was not the one prepared by God? I'll just leave that out there as a thought question for you. It is a variation on a theme because this isn't the only instance of this kind of thing happening in church history, we also have the same thing happening with the gold plates themselves. Why did God put the Nephites to all the trouble of preparing the gold plates, of smelting them, of preparing them, of engraving upon them, of preserving them, and then on Mormon of editing them and abridging them, and then on Moroni of hauling them across the country and burying them in the hill Cumorah and appearing to Joseph Smith 1,400 years later to show him where they were buried and going through all the trouble of having Joseph Smith get a hold of them and protect them against other people who want to get them from him, why does all of this have to be gone through when Joseph Smith never looked at the golden plates in order to translate them? Instead, he puts his seer stone in a hat, puts his face over the hat, and dictates the contents of the Book of Mormon to the scribe. So we have more than one instance of of items being prepared according to the narrative with a great deal of sacrifice, a great deal of preparation, a great deal of thought beforehand. And these items are prepared but never used by Joseph Smith when we find out how it is that he really did the translation. At this point in the conversation, they're going to start talking about the new history of the church in which Elder Snow was involved called Saints. I'm not going to go through the entirety of this part of the interview. I'm just going to play little snippets along the way that I think of interest. Please go to Mormon Land and listen to the interview in its entirety if you wish to. It's a very interesting interview, not only for what Elder Snow says, but also for what he can't quite bring himself to say as we've been discussing. Play the tape. Okay, let's jump to another project. Why saints? This is uh, this is uh, the multi-volume history of the church. It's the first one the church has done in like more than a century. Almost, tell us about it's tell been, us about the 1930s. Yeah, the last yeah. one. So, uh, B. H. Roberts did the comprehensive history of the church in 1930. It was a compilation of a lot of magazine articles that he had done, and then he turned them into the the comprehensive history. Uh, for some years, it's felt that it was time to do another one. Um, and as that process continued, there were f- starts and stops and fits about the whole process. It's Didn't a, Leonard Arrington have a 16 volume? He had one yeah. plan. 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 Uh, plan. A yes. plan for mm-hmm. a 16 volume. Right. And there was a, a couple of works that came out of that, individual right. works of mm-hmm. authors. But uh, the, the big 16 volume plan obviously didn't get done. At this point, reference is made to the 16-volume history of the church that had been greenlighted back in the 1970s when Leonard Arrington was the church historian. Please note that Elder Snow says that the 16-volume history of the church, quote, obviously didn't get done, unquote. He slips from the transitive form of a sentence to the intransitive form of the sentence. In other words, the transitive form is what is usually used for clarity. It follows the pattern of subject, verb, object. Somebody did something to something. The intransitive form leaves out the subject and simply says the verb and the object. It didn't get done. See, there's no subject in that sentence. In other words, we don't know 
who it is who caused it to not get done. And we also don't know why. The reason why it didn't get done and who caused it to not get done is something that was revealed in the recent biography of Leonard Arrington. And the reason it did not get done is because the manuscripts that were being produced by the church historians on the new 16-volume set of church history were being way too transparent for the comfort of some church leaders, including Elder Boyd K. Packer. The first volume in the 16-volume series dealt with, of course, Joseph Smith and his early years. This was a manuscript that was produced by Richard Bushman, and when this manuscript was reviewed by the leaders of the church, it was decided that this was a bridge too far, that there is transparency, and then there is transparency, and this was way too transparent for comfort. So it was the leaders of the church who put the kibosh on this 16-volume church history. That is the transitive form of the sentence. The intransitive form is, as Elder Snow said, this project obviously didn't get done. The transitive form is, the church leaders put the kibosh on it. Elder Snow also states that some of those volumes, a couple of those volumes that were planned for this 16-volume history of the church, did eventually get published. What he does not say is that those were published by non-church presses. For instance, Richard Bushman's highly problematic, at least to church leaders, volume on Joseph Smith's early years was titled Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism and was published not by Deseret, but by the University of Illinois Press in 1984. So that, as they say, is the rest of the story. What has happened since 1984 and today when the church is now publishing, at least in its essays and to some degree in its new history, saints, elements of Joseph Smith's early life that were found so objectionable in the 1980s that the church leaders squelched the 16-volume church history that was planned at that time? Well, the answer to that is, in one word, the internet. Well, I guess technically that's two words if you include the. But the answer is the internet. As Elder Snow said earlier, the reason they put out the essay about Joseph Smith using the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon is because people were talking about it. Word was getting out. In spite of their best efforts to keep it under wraps, to keep it under their hat, so to speak, people were finding out about these negative and challenging aspects of church history. And therefore, now more recently, the church has changed course. And instead of squashing history books published by the church, that deal with these issues as they did in the early 1980s. Now they are producing and promoting a new history book that does deal, at least to some degree, with some of these issues. Play the tape. Let me ask a general question now about history. What do you think are the most pressing needs for young Latter-day Saints? You mentioned them when it comes to history. Oh, I think I gave every one of my grandchildren a copy of volume one of Saints. I'd, I'd like them to read that. I was crass enough to tell him I'll 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 pay him if I read it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a very good introduction, and it's balanced. It has a lot of the warts in it. Uh, it's not just all the you know easy stuff. It's there's some hard things to understand, and uh, I think it's well done. And I think they really get a good sense of the uh, of the history. And I think if young people read those, I don't think they're going to have a faith crisis later when they're 28 or 29 and wonder, hear something for the first time and wonder what else the church is hiding. 
Stop the tape. Okay, now recall that the answer that Elder Snow is giving here is in response to the question of what are the most pressing needs for young Latter-day Saints. And here he talks about the real purpose, or at least the primary purpose in his mind, and he should know since he was the church historian in charge of the project. The main purpose is to show a lot of the warts of church history, that's his phrase, and to include some things that are hard to understand. Once again, his phrase, some things hard to understand, with the goal in mind that later on, members of the church, when they hear about these things from other sources, they will not feel completely blindsided and they will not be wondering what else the church is hiding from them. So really, the Saints Project seems to be maybe two parts history and one part public relations. The most pressing purpose for writing this new history is not to get the history out there in front of the members. It is to get some of the difficult parts out there in front of the members for the public relations purpose that down the road, they will not encounter these strange and unusual things from sources outside the church and then wonder what else the church is hiding from them. In this context, it cannot be ignored the fact that Elder Turley, Elder Richard Turley, who used to work in the church historian's office, and as Elder Snow said in a part of this interview, which I did not play, stated that Elder Turley is now working as the head of the church public relations department. Only in the LDS church is public relations and church history apparently fungible, by which I mean they equate to the same thing. Church history is public relations. Public relations is church history. It is a lateral move to go from being a prominent church historian like Richard Turley was to being the head of the public relations department. Play the tape. So the idea to reiterate is to sort of inoculate young people in in the sense of a more nuanced view of the faith's history so that they don't say, hey, I never knew Joseph married a 14-year-old or whatever. Um, I guess that's the hope is that, that this won't appear shocking. When we, we don't have time in the two hours of church on Sunday yeah. <laughs> to cover all of this, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. So you try to focus on things that uh, uh, about repentance and uh, living better lives and history really has been reserved for another time seminary and institute uh, self-study we're hoping that young people will read that so they get an, a real good understanding early on uh, of, of the whole story stop the tape okay I just have to comment here that I hear this argument over and over and over again as to the excuse of why it is the church does not want to get deep into church history by which I mean get into the negative aspects of church history and the commonly heard excuse is because church is only three hours long now they get to say it's only two hours long because of the change in the church program that went into effect at the beginning of this year 2019 but really The church seems to have no self-awareness of the fact that three hours, and now two hours, but up to this point, three hours every Sunday spent in church is, by comparison to other churches, an inordinate amount of time. And in fact, if you look at it from a college-based point of view, three hours a week is basically the equivalent of a college course. Now, the excuse that's given is, well, we're focused so much on uh, repentance and living a good life, but the fact of the matter is... There is plenty of time to teach church history at church if that is what the church wanted to do. For example, in the third hour of church, back when there were three hours and I was in high priest group, the time came around one year not too long ago when they had run out of presidents of the church to do the teachings of the president's manual 
for the curriculum for the church, not only for the priesthood, but also for the Relief Society, who were both studying the same thing at the same time. They had absolutely nothing to do, no curriculum and no manual to take its place. So what did they do? Well, as a stopgap measure for that year, they went and had the high priests, the elders, and the Relief Society go over the newly revised and issued Gospel Principles Manual. That is a manual that is used for investigators and new members of the church. It was a complete waste of time, as indeed is much of the time spent at church hearing the same thing and the same stories over and over and over again. So it is against that backdrop that this excuse that there is just not enough time at church to teach the history of the church rings somewhat hollow. In addition to that, every four years in Sunday school, we study the history of the church and the doctrine and covenants, which of course are embedded in the history of the church. So please don't use that excuse, or at least don't expect me to buy that excuse, that there's just not enough time at church to go into the history of the church if the church wanted to go into the history of the church. Additionally, all these resources have been put into writing this new saint's history. And at the end of the interview, Elder Snow is left to say he hopes the youth will read it. Well, the church has ways of ensuring that this material is covered. It's very simple. Instead of just using it in seminary and institute and hoping the youth will read it, make it the curriculum, make it the manual in the church for the high priests, for the elders. I guess they're both the same now for the high priests and the elders, for the elders, the high priests have been done away with. Okay. Make it the curriculum, make it the course of study in the church for the priesthood and for the Relief Society. It is very simple. The church knows exactly how to do this if they really want the members of the church to learn the history. That's how you do it. But instead, they want the youth to read it, or at least they hope the youth will read it. And they're really trying to keep it as far away from the grown-ups as possible. And this makes sense when you think about the overarching strategy here, which is we've got a younger generation in the church and an older generation in the church. And the older generation was raised with one form of church history, which would be the whitewashed correlated history of the church. And it is that generation, the older generation, that is probably going to have more problems with finding out that the church has been playing hide the ball during the course of their entire lives. It is the young members of the church who need to hear this material now so that they will not feel blindsided later on. Therefore, the strategy is to introduce it in such a way that it is the younger members of the church who learn about it, at least in this more transparent way. Not completely transparent by any means, but at least in this more transparent way. And it is the older members of the church who are kept away from it as far as humanly possible. And let me give you an example as to how it is that this new history, while being more transparent, is far from being completely transparent. I talked about that in a recent podcast titled, Does the Church Continue to Hide Church History? And I looked at the recitation of the first vision in the first two chapters of the first volume of Saints. The two main problems with Joseph Smith's 1832 account of the first vision when compared with the subsequent accounts of the first vision is that in the first account, he says he already knew when he went to the grove to pray that all the churches were in a state of apostasy. He didn't need God to tell him that as in subsequent versions, but instead he had arrived at that conclusion from his study of the scriptures alone. Second, in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith relates seeing only one being in his vision. He does not specifically say he saw two, 
but relates seeing only one. This is, of course, is at contrast to all subsequent accounts where he sees two and makes it plain that he sees two. These are the two primary problems with the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision, the earliest account we have, the only one that's in his own handwriting, and yet in the saint's book. Both of those two problems are glossed over, are not mentioned, and the reader is left with the impression that the 1832 account problems do not exist at all. So it is my feeling that even with the New Saints book, and even with the youth who actually read the New Saints book, later on when they find out that these two issues do exist and were not mentioned in the Saints book, and they were not apprised of it, even though they read it like they were told they were supposed to, that they will still feel blindsided, that they will still feel like there were things about church history that they were not told by the church in its official publications, even in its new and improved publications, and they will still be left with the question, what else is the church trying to hide? Play the tape. Right. And not only so that they're not surprised, but also that, that they're hearing it from the church. I mean, that's one of the things we hear from people is, if the church had just told me yeah, we you feel know, these right. things, yeah. I would right. not and feel And the forward that. here mm-hmm. is, there's a forward by the first presidency. Stop the tape. This is one of the parts in the interview which I find very interesting because it is somewhat contradictory to something that Elder Snow said earlier in the interview. Here he says that at the beginning of the Saints History book, there is an introduction by the First Presidency. You will recall that earlier on in the same interview, Elder Snow was talking about the church essays, and he said that there was a lot of confusion by members of the church because they didn't know if there was a rogue history department producing these essays because there was nothing in the essays that said that they were approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And he put that comment in reference to they couldn't do it, that there was something that prevented them from doing that. Well, it appears that in the Saints book, they know how to put an introduction by the First Presidency. They know how to put language in there that says that this document, this book, the Saints book, is approved by the First Presidency of the Church, which lets us know that they do know how to put such language in a document where they want to approve it. And the fact that they don't put it in the essays show that it's not a matter of they couldn't put it in the essays, but they chose not to. And the reason why they chose not to we have talked about earlier. And not only is it cover all of the warts and mm-hmm. difficult things, I mean, it's tremendously faith-promoting in and of itself. The story is, I mean, it, it's just miraculous to me that they were able to even survive as a church in those early days. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think everyone should read it. I think it's a great, great read and a great story to know. Stop the tape. Now, I agree with Elder Snow that the story of the LDS Church is indeed amazing, and it is in some regards miraculous that it even survived. But I have to take issue here because now Elder Snow has segued from being technically and strictly accurate in saying that the Saints book covers some of the warts and some of the hard stories to now saying that it covers all of the warts. That is simply not true, Elder Snow. I think you got carried away there with your language. But as I've already shown you, and as you seem to have admitted earlier, there are a number of warts just related with the First Vision account that the Saints book carefully avoids telling its readers. Now we're going to segue into the LGBTQ issue and how it relates to the church and perhaps the most controversial statement that Elder Snow made in this entire interview relating to the exclusionary policy of November 2015 and its subsequent reversal in April of 2015. 19. Play the tape. So another one of the issues for young Latter-day Saints is LGBT issues. 
you were around when the in 2015 when that policy came out. What did you think about it, and what do you think about the reversal of it? Well, I'm very, very happy with the reversal. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think when it came out? I was very disappointed. Yeah. Hmm. Why? Well, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances, and it, it just seemed. Uh, it didn't seem well thought out. Didn't it, it? It was an amendment to the handbook. Why would we lead with we don't bless the children of uh, gay and lesbian parents? I mean, it just did not make sense to me. It, it was hard for me. I just, uh, I'm very, very glad they reversed it. Stop the tape. Here, Elder Snow is surprisingly straightforward in what it is that he says. But he speaks in sentence fragments. It appears that he is caught somewhat off guard by this question, and yet he ends up being more transparent than we have heard church leaders be in recent memory. I want to play this response again, and I'm going to cut it up and parse it out and make a few comments along the way so we can see not only what it is that Elder Snow is saying, but what it is that he's not saying. You'll see what I mean as we go. Play the tape. So another one of the issues for young Latter-day Saints is LGBT issues. You were around when the, in 2015 when that policy came out. What did you think about it, and what do you think about the reversal of it? Well, I'm very, very happy with the reversal. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think when it came out? I was very disappointed. Yeah. Hmm. Why? Well, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances and... The first sentence fragment that Elder Snow uses is that he has a lot of friends and acquaintances. He does not complete the sentence, which is where it was obviously going, which is that are gay or that have members of the family who are gay. I mean, I have lots of friends and acquaintances. Pretty much everybody has lots of friends and acquaintances. This statement standing on its own makes no sense unless he was going toward who are gay or know people who are gay. It is his personal relationships that caused first and foremost, at least in this list of reasons out of his mouth, that he had trouble with the policy as to why it is that he had trouble with the policy. Now notice that this is a sentence fragment. He is speaking haltingly. He is caught off guard. He is not completing his thoughts, and yet he is telling us more than we ever expected he would actually say as a general authority in the church regarding his feelings about the church policy. Play the tape. It just seemed... Uh... That didn't seem well thought out. Stop the tape. Now, this is a shocker when he says it did not seem well thought out. Now, I appreciate the fact that he tells us how he really felt when he heard about the policy, that it did not seem well thought out. And yet, two months after this policy was initially leaked to the public in November of 2015, no less than senior apostle, Elder Russell M. Nelson, who is now the current president of the church and the president of the church, while Elder Snow is making this statement, went on record when he stated that this policy was a revelation, but he stated that it was very, very well thought out. This was in his address in January of 2016 to the student body at Hawaii, which was broadcast as a young adult devotional. Play the tape. The first presidency and quorum of the Twelve Apostles counsel together and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the president of the church to proclaim the Lord's will. This prophetic process was followed in 2012 with the change in minimum age for missionaries. And again with 
the recent additions to the Church's handbook, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries, filled with compassion for all and especially for the children, we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter. Ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of His hope for eternal life for each of His children, we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then when the Lord inspired His prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. Stop the tape. Now, I tend to agree with Elder Snow that this policy was not as well thought out as President Nelson portrayed in his January 2016 address, and yet it cannot be gainsaid that Elder Nelson is definitely saying it was very well thought out. I mean, how much better can something be thought out than when you consider countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could occur? And yet here we have Elder Snow directly contradicting the president of the church on this point. This is amazing indeed, and yet we are left to wonder whether the only reason that Elder Snow is now finally being this vocal about his disgruntlement with the policy is number one, because the policy has been reversed, and number two, because he is on the brink of retirement. Now we continue with Elder Snow's Mormonland interview and his comments relating to the policy of exclusion. Play the tape. It was an amendment to the handbook. Again, another partial thought. He thought it was a bad idea that it was issued as an amendment to the handbook instead of being announced publicly. You do things as an amendment to the handbook behind the scenes when you're embarrassed of them. You do them publicly if you are not embarrassed of them. Just the manner in which this was inserted in the dark of night to the handbook was problematic to Elder Snow, and I, for one, agree. Going on. Why would we lead with, we don't bless the children of uh, gay and lesbian Parents, I mean, it just did not make sense to me. It Here, Elder Snow once again reemphasizes that it did not make sense to him, and one of the primary reasons it did not was because the policy penalized not only those who were in gay relationships themselves, but also their children by denying to them baptism in the church, priesthood ordination for boys, and missionary service until and unless they got special approval from the first presidency and denounced the lifestyle of the offending parent. This was by far and away the most problematic aspect of this policy, and it's good to know that Elder Stephen Snow, of the first quorum of the 70, no less, felt the same way. It raises the question as to how many other members of the first quorum of the 70, and indeed amongst the apostles as well, may have felt similarly to Elder Snow. Now for Elder Snow's concluding remark on this subject. It was hard for me. I just, uh, I'm very, very glad they reversed it. 
So we see from this statement that Elder Snow was very troubled by the policy in the first place. It was very hard for him. He could not understand it. It did not seem well thought out. And yet we are only able to find this out from Elder Snow after the policy has been reversed. I am aware of no instance where Elder Snow went on the record or publicly in any venue to express his opinion about the policy while the policy was still in effect. So on the one hand, I am glad that this policy troubled Elder Snow, much as I myself and many other people that I know who are members of the church were troubled by the policy. My concern is that Elder Snow, while troubled about the policy, said nothing and did nothing, to my knowledge, to register the problems he had with the policy. During the period the policy was in effect, he was in a position, a unique position, not available to me or most members of the church as being a leader in the church to register his disapprobation about the policy. And yet, to my knowledge, he did nothing. He certainly did not come out publicly and voice the problems and issues he was having with the policy until after the policy was reversed. And this highlights an issue within the LDS church that I want to make a couple of comments on at this point. A good Mormon is defined in the LDS church as one who does what he or she is told. And it doesn't make any difference if what he or she is told conflicts with their own personal beliefs or with their conscience, or if they have a problem with it. The job of a good Mormon is to be quiet about their reservations, to put their shoulder to the wheel, and to push on anyway. And that is exactly what Elder Snow did which is why I'm sure he became a leader in the church in the first place. Those are the kind of people who get promoted to leadership positions, those who will do what they are told, regardless of what it is that they are told. And if they have a problem with something, they will keep it to themselves and keep pushing on anyway. Now, this is not the only issue that Elder Snow had a problem with in the church. He's going to say later on in this interview that he had a similar problem with the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. And yet, what did he do about it? Did he say that this was a problem, that this was something that should not be done in the Lord's church? No, he says he put it to the side and he just kept pushing on. Let's play that quote from the interview right now so you'll know what I'm talking about. Play the tape. Uh, I remember being very bothered as a young person by by that race having grown up during the 60s during the civil rights era and it it was uh, it was one of those issues I had to set aside and just say hopefully this will be answered and things will work out and then I just moved on Now, Elder Snow is not the first person or first general authority in the church to come out publicly and register private dissent over the exclusionary policy against the blacks until the ban was lifted in 1978, and yet state that even though they had a personal problem with the policy and did not understand how it could be true and saw the harm that it was doing to other people that they knew in the church and outside the church, they nevertheless went against the dictates of their own conscience in favor of following the leadership of the church. Elder Oaks made a similar comment back in June of 2018 during the B1 celebration. Let's play the tape on that, shall we? Why was the revelation on the priesthood such an occasion of joy? As a young man in the legal profession, I lived in the Midwest and the East for 17 years. The restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry, almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced 
by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Now that day had come, and I wept for joy." So we can see that this is becoming a sort of pattern among church leaders now. First we have Elder Oaks, now we have Elder Snow, talking about experiences that they had with certain teachings, doctrines, policies of the church that they found morally unconscionable, that bothered them, that they researched. They could not find any confirmation of the Spirit in support of these doctrines, and yet when confronted with the choice of being true to their conscience or true to the leaders of the church, the message is clear. The correct choice is to be true to the leaders of the church in spite of what our conscience tells us is correct. If the leaders of the church tell you things and teach you things and have you do things that you believe are good and right and that comport with the dictates of your own conscience, you follow those. And if the leaders of the church tell you things that you believe are not good, are not right, and do not comport with the dictates of your conscience, you do those as well. There is no room for questioning in the church. There is no room for criticism of the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Which makes me think of the 13th article of faith, which says, We claim the privilege of worshiping God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now that is a noble aspiration and one indeed which many members of the church do. However, it cannot be ignored and this case illustrates that the highest form of worshiping God in the LDS church is when we follow the leaders of the church even when it does not comport with the dictates of our own conscience, even when it contradicts the dictates of our own conscience. Following the leaders of the church, regardless of the fact that what they say and teach violates the dictates of our conscience, is the highest form of worship. And although I have respect for Elder Snow coming forward at this point after the policy was reversed and saying his true feelings while it was in effect, I would have had much more respect for him if he had come out while the policy was in effect and said publicly the same thing. The same thing goes for Elder Oaks. While I appreciate the fact that he is finally now coming clean about his true feelings regarding the priesthood ban 40 years after it was lifted, I would have had much more respect for him if he had come out publicly with his true feelings while the ban was in place. One almost gets the sense that we are seeing a sort of mea culpa by these two church leaders, that they thought these things were wrong and they're going to admit now that they're no longer in effect that they thought these things were wrong and that somehow they hope for some sort of absolution of their sin with their late repentance. But in some ways, it seems to me like there's a little bit of virtue signaling going on here, that now that we all sort of realize and agree that these bans were not a good idea while they were in effect, that we can come out now and say, hey, we didn't agree with it either. I think such a confession turns more to the condemnation of the confessor because it immediately raises the question, well, if you really felt that way while the ban was in effect, why didn't you say so? If a person agrees with the ban and goes along with it, I may question their ethics, 
But if a person does not agree with the ban and goes along with it anyway, then I have to question their integrity. I will leave that as a thought question for you as to which is the greater sin and which sin is more in need of repentance. Well, that's about all for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. If you appreciate what you're hearing on Radio Free Mormon, please go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage right now and please make a monthly donation today. You can make it for $5, $10, $25, $50, whatever you can afford on a regular monthly basis. Your contributions keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Radio Free Mormon.